Hello and welcome to the War Films podcast where we're looking at 10 classic war films. This is the fourth one and we're looking this episode at 1977 film A Bridge Too Far. I'm Garen Ewing, I'm a comic artist and writer. I've done a book called The Adventures of Julius Chance of the Rainbow Orchid and I'm doing these podcasts with my brother Murray. Hello, I'm Murray. I'm a writer and I do some music as well. Um, I have a blog called Musings which you'll find linked to on our Adventure Films podcast website. So we've done three so far. We previously did ten classic adventure films and we did those a little quicker. This has been a, quite a long wait before this one, which I apologise. <laughs> it's mainly me due to work. I also wondered, I think this A Bridge Too Far is quite a long film. Yeah. So there was a bit more preparation involved in this one. Also, it, it is one of my favourite war films. I, I do sometimes say it's my favourite war film. I'm not so sure about that, partly due to this podcast. I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, there's so many good films <laughs> that I don't know whether to call it my favourite because they're so different. Mm. But this has been my long-time favourite. What's your history with this film? Have you seen it before? Well, actually, I know you've seen it before because we saw it at the cinema. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. I only know I've seen it at the cinema because you've told me. (laughs) So Um, um, our dad used to take us to the cinema every other weekend, I think. And on one of those trips, we saw A Bridge Too Far, and this was when it came out in 1977, probably before Star Wars, which came out at Christmas time, I think, and this was in the summer. And I remember thinking along with another film we saw called The Hiding Place, <laughs> which we saw at East Critzid Cinema, um, that this was one of the most boring films ever. It went on forever. I didn't understand it. I probably didn't think there was enough action. I can remember one scene from it, which was a load of soldiers walking along a hilltop in silhouette against an orange sky. Actually, that scene doesn't exist in the film. <laughs> there is a scene where there's some soldiers walking in silhouette, but then the very final scene of the film is with Laurence Olivia and Liv Ullman mm. walk, pulling the cart, walking against an orange sky. Oh, right. Anyway, yeah. So I'd, I'd got that wrong in my little childhood head memory. But since then, I've seen it again, and it's it's gone mm. way up in my estimation. So, sorry, yeah. had you seen it I, in, in living I, memory? I don't <laughs> remember seeing it again. I mean, I knew the title, but I didn't know anything about it, really. I didn't know, for instance, that it was very much based on a, a real, real events, much more than... I think any of the other films we've covered so far. Yes, yes. I didn't know it was such a such a detailed uh, reconstruction of them either. So I really didn't know anything about it <laughs> going into this watch. Yes, it is interesting that unlike the three films we've done so far, which Guns of Navarone, Platoon and Parts of Glory, which were all fictional really. Yeah. Now Platoon was based on Oliver Stone's own experiences. Guns of Navarone was in pretty much entirely fictional. It has yeah, some that's the some most. elements of of minor fact in it, mm. and Paths of Glory also had some. Yeah, it was based in truth, yeah. but was a, a a novel basically. Though often we find that there are um, actual events which happened which are similar. Yeah. Apart from with Guns of Navarone, which is very much the heroic version. Mm. Although I'm sure missions like that did occur. This one is, as I think you said last time, it's almost like a documentary. It is, really. It's a documentary <laughs> with massive stars playing the lead roles. Yeah. Um, but yes, there's not really a story with character development and all that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah. It really is very much like a documentary. It's very true to the facts of the um, operation. And because of that, I found that I got a lot more out of it when I watched it. 
I watched it first and thought oh, that was quite good, and then I I watched it again, realizing that I hadn't been keeping track of who's who. Because <laughs> things there's a lot of bridges in this film. <laughs> it's called a bridge too far, but yeah. there are several bridges they have to cross. I think we'll, we'll go into exactly what happens yes. in a second. Yes. But so a lot of it is visually the same. You see people going through countryside or on roads or on bridges, and yes. so I hadn't really got it worked out in my head who was who and where they were going. So yes. I print out a map yes. and I also wrote out who was head of what and where they were going and yeah. suddenly the film was a lot more enjoyable because <laughs> yeah. it made sense. Well, I've seen this film probably at least ten times wow. <laughs> um, over the years. I've had the video for a very long time and I also, for this podcast, printed out a map yeah. and watched the film with a map and it made a lot more sense to me. Then it has done. Uh, before I've enjoyed it, it's been fine. Mm. But suddenly, because it, it changes scenes so often, mm. back and forth between the different units, yeah. that you it's very easy to get confused as to who's with who and yeah. where's where. So, but a map uh, suddenly makes that all clear, and it does make it um, more enjoyable. I think. Yeah. So some basics about the film. As I already said, it was released in 1977. It was directed by Richard Attenborough. His third or fourth film, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, which is amazing considering the the size of the film and the amount of money he must it have is. been working with. Yes, yes. And the level of stars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think his previous <clears throat> films hadn't been huge hits. They were critically acclaimed, mm. but had not financially done very well. Yeah. So that is amazing. Uh, talking of the finances, it was financed independently by Joseph Levine. Yeah. Um, and he paid for the film himself. It was a pet project. Mm. I think he stumped up 24 million or 26 million, something like that, which is, I mean, obviously he was rich from his long career as a producer. Yeah. He introduced Godzilla to the US. Oh, did he? Um, <laughs> and and yeah, produced such a huge list of films. Mm. So he was well off. Um, if this film hadn't have worked, he'd have been not bankrupt, but he would not have been rich anymore, that's mm, for certain. Yeah. But actually, by the time the film started shooting I think or by the time it was released it was four million in the black oh, because right. he'd gone around getting distribution agreements and showing bits of the film mm. so it must have been yeah after a lot of that thanks to the star names he managed to get involved which is you know as they say a stellar cast yes yeah uh, it was screenplay by William Goldman who yeah. was a very successful Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid Stepford yeah. Wives Marathon Man All the President's Men Princess Bride. I mean, some of these are based on novels that he wrote. The Princess Bride, for instance. Yes, and Marathon Man, I think. Yeah, I think that's the, Yeah, and he's done a lot of Stephen King and he did Chaplin with Richard Attenborough as well, yes. didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's based on a book by Cornelius Ryan, who had um, actually died before this film was made. Oh, really? In fact, I think he died while he was on book tour for A Bridge Too Far. Oh, right. So I think he died two months after its publication. And was that a novel or a, a no? Non-fiction? It was a yeah, no. non-fiction. In fact, I've I'm halfway through the book at the moment. So I didn't oh. quite get to finish it, so I started to read that. He also wrote the book for the Longest Day, which was oh, a 1962 right. film about D-Day. Mm. That was produced by Daryl F. Zanuck. And that was, it's kind of similar to A Bridge Too Far in some ways, because that had a stellar cast. Mm. It had John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Robert Mitchum, Sean Connery, who's also in Bridge Too Far, um, Richard Burton, Rod Steiger, and, and more. Mm. It was a, but that was very documentary-like as well. Oh, right. And the, inter- the longest day I considered for this list, and it, you know, it could certainly replace any of the films 
that's I've had a few tweets about this. Why aren't you including this film? Why aren't you including uh, that film? And they're right, but we yeah. had to limit it to ten. Mm. And it's a it's a personal ten in some ways, but there are so many good war films. Certainly, yeah. like Tora 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 is another one I wanted to put in, mainly because of its connection with Kurosawa. Yes, <laughs> who started out as director for the Japanese sequences um, and then was fired. Mm. I just read a very interesting book on that whole story about. Um, I think it's called All the Emperor's Men. <laughs> I think that's what it's called. Uh, all about Kurosawa's time on Tora Tora. Tora. Yeah. He only filmed for two weeks, but there's a, it's enough for a whole book. <laughs> Very fascinating book. Uh, in fact, that was produced by Zanuck as well. Oh, that right. was his project, and he wanted it to be like Longest Day. The Longest Day had three directors. It had a British director for the British scenes. It had a, um, a German director and a, an American director, each for their... Oh, right. The same with Tora Tora Tora. It had a, an American director and, and a Japanese director. Yeah. Um, and but Tora 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 was mostly um, unknowns. Right. In the cast, the longest day was very much like a bridge too far. Mm. A huge list of the stars at the time. Yeah. Um, and the longest day, yeah, as I said, was by Cornelius Ryan as well as Bridge Too Far. So a little <laughs> load of connected facts there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that Richard Attenborough, I think, said about the, justifying the use of so many stars is he said they're representing people who were in the army, sort of stars right. in the army. You know, yeah. there are major people, and he said, you know, we're talking about major generals, lieutenant generals, field marshals, and so on, yes. and they all had a, lot, a great deal of presence. People would know who they were and feel a bit awed in their presence. And so using film stars um, immediately creates that effect without you having to having to create the characters with story. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, actually. I hadn't mm. considered that. And I think if you'd have had unknowns in this film, it wouldn't have been as interesting, mm. it being a very straight documentary. That, I'm not sure about that. Um, also, but... it helped me to just to remember them. Because yes. sometimes <laughs> if you've got unknowns, particularly if they look oh, yeah. similar, then you think, oh, now, was he that or that? But this time... I mean, writing down... My notes in this, I I just you, you know wrote Sean Connery and uh, <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> yes whoever, we, yeah. rather than the actual the actual characters' names. Yeah, because they're, they're the names we know. Yes. Mm. So um, we'll we'll get we'll go to, through the cast as instead of a big list because there's so yeah. many um, as we go through talking yeah. about the film. But the film is about Operation Market Garden. Yeah, which was a plan that the British general. Montgomery, Monty, mm. came up with. There were two generals. There was Patton and Montgomery yeah. under Eisenhower, who was uh, overall in charge. And there was some rivalry between Patton and Montgomery because they both wanted to be the first to get into Germany. Yes. <laughs> Patton was generally considered the better general. Yeah. But Eisenhower went with Montgomery's plan, Operation yeah. Market Garden. And the plan was... Now, the Germans, after D-Day, the Germans were starting to fall back. Yes. Weaken. And they were they were being pushed back to Holland. Yeah. And Montgomery's plan was to take, to parachute men into Holland, behind enemy lines, um, at sort of three or four, well, to take a series of bridges. Yeah. The, key, the, yeah. the key bridge is Arnhem, which they say is the one that, if they had that bridge, then they'd be able to go straight into Germany, particularly the industrial area of Germany, which means they'd be able to wipe out Germans' ability to manufacture armaments. Right. Which would pretty much end... I mean, the whole point of this was to end the war by Christmas. Yes. <laughs> which it certainly didn't do. No, unfortunately it yeah. didn't. Um, so they're going to take the bridges, and then a that that was market. Yes, it was two, a, a two-part market operation. Garden. So market was the airborne, 
and Garden was the ground forces where Thirtieth Corps, yeah. the tank and ground forces, would speed up this road, yeah. a single highway that connected all the bridges. Yeah. So the bridges would be taken, and the land force would just be able to breeze on through up to Arnhem because they were in Belgium, and the road from Belgium to Arnhem in in Holland was the one they're basically following, which has got I don't know five or six bridges on. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the basics. Um, and they had seven, once they, it was agreed to go, they had seven days to get it yeah. in order. And they're saying, this is the largest operation of its kind, dropping 35,000 men behind enemy lines. And as we go through the beginning of the film, we find out it's not just the largest operation of its kind in the shortest time done, but there's all sorts of other things that get, all sorts of other restrictions and firsts that come along, which make yeah. me think, surely they should be having seven <laughs> doubts by now. But another point about this is that before this, I think they say they've they've had 16 operations which they started to put forward and then had to be cancelled at the last minute due right. to weather or enemy movements or whatever. Yeah. And there's a feeling among the British that they just want the war over. And this is something I've I've heard people say about Operation Market Garden. Mm. One of the reasons why Montgomery's was chosen over Patton was because there was a real feeling that just let's get it over with. You know, the Germans are retreating. Let's just finish it. Yeah. Rather than doing something more sure and steady, which would prolong the war, but might be more, you know, more assured of getting a result. Yeah, because Eisenhower and Patton wanted what was called a broad front, which was a general sweep along the front yeah. as they come in and battling as they go. This was punching through one spot. Yeah. Um, very quick and powerful. And... It's a good plan, I think, basically. I think it's a good plan. Um, the problem being you'd be surrounded by Germans. But, <laughs> but they thought the Germans were demoralised, yes, leaving, and they kind of were. Yeah. They were. The Dutch had the feeling they were... There's a bit seen at the beginning where the one of the Dutch resistance and his son... Yeah. Or is it Peter, I think his name is? Oh, I can't remember the name. Um, I'm going to call him Peter throughout this. It might not be. <laughs> <laughs> They're counting the tanks that have come through their town. Yeah. Um, and he says, um, you know, last... They're, they're, they find they're increasing, actually. So things are going the other way. But he yeah. says, the week before, you know, your mother and I could have taken Holland alone because there, was, <laughs> there were so few. Yeah. But now they seem to be increasing. So, uh, yes, the I was just going to say, mm. overall, the interesting thing about this film is it's not about a great Allied victory. It's about a kind of a great Allied disaster yeah oh it's not entirely a disaster but no. it sort of is <laughs> well montgomery said it was 90 percent successful yeah <laughs> which is uh, yeah but uh, one thing to say about this is that what the germans were saying is they at the, near the beginning they say um basically what's happening is we're retreating faster than the allies can advance because yeah. the allies needed lines of supplies yes. they'd, they'd broken through at the beaches on d-day and were chasing the Germans, but they needed the further they went after the Germans, the more the longer the line of food and ammunition required to actually keep them going. Yes, of course, lines of supply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but of course, the Germans were retreating over their own lines of supply, so they weren't at yeah. all pushed. They could retreat as fast as they need they needed to. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Allies were stretched. So the film starts with a narration, actually, yeah. of a woman talking over some news footage and the woman is actually Kate Terhorst who was played by Liv Ullman in the film 
Oh, you mean this is the actual... She's the, the actual, actual lady, oh, right. yeah. yeah. Um, she was known as <clears throat> Angel of Arnhem mm. because she gave her house to the British to use as a hospital mm. and she helped look after these bits. So yeah, that's actually her voice at the beginning. Now, I don't, I don't know where to start with this film, but it's such a massive... <laughs> <laughs> I've never had so many notes and bits of paper. And I'm probably going to be... I feel quite well prepared with notes, but I'm going to probably more confused as we go through it because there's so much to reference. I suppose one thing to point out before we actually get into the film is just how much attention to historical detail was used. Yeah. They tried everywhere to get the actual actual tanks, actual planes and so on. I, mm. I heard somewhere that one of the tanks was taken off a war memorial where it had been oh, bolted really? onto a platform. <laughs> um, so they basically got every surviving tank of this one type yeah. to get the right sort. In some cases, like the gliders that were used, they said there weren't even any illustrations or plans of how the gliders looked. Right. But they built them, each one costing £35,000 each. Wow. <laughs> the thing I heard about the gliders, I mean, there was news footage of them. Yeah. So they could see yeah. them. But they actually weren't built to fly, of course. And you mm. don't see any in the air. No. But they did have them being pulled along on the runway. Yeah. And apparently the guy who designed them, designed them so well that actually they did start to take off. But they couldn't ha let them take off, because if they got in the air, they'd probably break yeah. apart. They weren't designed for flight. Yeah. So it was a little bit scary. In fact, the designer of the aircraft was actually piloting one of the gliders oh, really? <laughs> on the take one of the takeoff scenes. And I think the the one of the technical crew said he, he was taking his life in his hands <laughs> doing that. But yes, and yeah. the... Well, just the logistics of this mm. film are amazing. It's like another war. Yes. <laughs> they had to source aircraft, so the Dakotas that dropped the paratroopers and towed the gliders. Mm. As you say, the equipment. Now, I believe there were no German tanks or airplanes available. Oh, There's right. just nothing around, and that's been a problem for all war films. Oh, yeah. So the German tanks in this were Dutch tanks, um, oh, yeah. dressed up to look like German tanks. <laughs> But the guns, the uniforms, and the number of people... I was going to say, the number well. of explosions. Oh, Once, goodness, once yeah. you get into a war scene, you know, you're used to it, like in the Guns of Navarone, you see an explosion. Yeah. But here you see just... I mean, it gives you a good sense of what it would have been like to be yes. under a barrage. Yeah. But also, I'm also sitting there thinking, just think how much this costs. Yes. <laughs> explosion after explosion. Yeah. Um, lots of people, and, and also the scene which comes later where you've got parachuters coming down Ooh. from the sky. Mm. None of this is CGI, so everything no. is actually done. Yeah. And you've got hundreds of people dropping onto the ground, and of course they had to be trained paratroopers. Yeah, well there were three armies, they were British, Dutch and Polish, I think. Mm, yeah. And they basically treated it as an exercise. It, yeah. was, very, it was a great opportunity for an exercise. That was the parachute drop, and the other thing, they used the army for it may have, I can't remember who it was whether it was the Dutch or maybe even the British probably the British actually where they built the Bailey Bridge across the river oh yes yeah. they used that as an exercise as well for uh, young recruits who had, had <laughs> done that before I think I mean, we've come across that in um, the guns of Navarone I was going to call it the bridges of Navarone <laughs> <laughs> where actual military get involved and it helps the cost of the um, yeah the whole uh, film which reminds me of one of the best looking Doctor Who uh, <laughs> series was the Sea Devils where they got the Navy to participate for free basically right. and so you've got suddenly you've got actual <laughs> boats and uh, yeah. you know actual Navy 
soldiers, not yes, soldiers, uh, sailors. sailors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, war games. That's what they. You know, I mean, it's useful for them. So yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So I think we should maybe we should start by saying we we start as with so many war films start with people generals with a map and pointers <laughs> saying what's going to happen. Yes. Um, so often in films of this sort, you get, you know, this is what we're going to do, and they point out all the the uh, dangers involved. Like in the Guns of Navarone, it was pointing out the dangers that they have to encounter. Yeah. Here, you get a sense that they're they're saying this is the plan. Oh, we're going to drop you here. You're going to take the bridge. You, we're going to do this, and it's all as though it's going to be easy. They know it's not going to be easy. Yeah. And almost straight away, we start getting things going wrong. So, for instance, they say, right, we're going to drop you Sean Connery's men. He's General Urquhart. Major General Robert Urquhart, but for some reason um, he gets called Roy a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. really understand that. He's, the idea is he's going to be taking Arnhem, and they're going to drop him close to that. But when it comes to it, they say, oh, we can't drop you here. <laughs> they end up dropping him eight miles away, I think. Yes. Yeah, off the map. Yeah. <laughs> Off, off the map they got on the wall. There's this great scene where they put up a big photograph of the bridge at Arnhem. Yeah. And he says, well, where are you going to drop us? I need drop zones as close as possible to the bridge. Now, clearly, this area is no use at all. Kind of my chaps landing the top chimneys, but... Now, this looks inviting here. What's the terrain like? Sorry, sir. All our reports indicate that uh, this terrain here is too soft for glider landings. You see, the nose digs in first on touchdown, the whole thing goes arse over tip, total right off. All right. What about that? No, afraid not, sir. You see, after the drop, when we bank for our return, we run into a whole lot of flak and rubbish in this Jerry airfield up here at uh, Dealham. Presumably you're intending to let us land somewhere. It's here, and he points to a point off the photograph. Yeah, and um, the Polish general, <laughs> May General Sosabowski, who yeah. is quite critical and worried about this, yeah. this plan, and especially his soldiers' role in it, yeah. uh, comes up to him stands behind him and the 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 map guy turns around realizes someone's behind him uh, can i help you he says um just just checking whose side you're on <laughs> points out this ridiculous landing yeah, yeah. and that was one of the points is they couldn't they couldn't drop the men on arnhem mm. which they wanted to which would have been the ideal thing yeah. because they got to take the bridges quickly this whole thing was about speed and this was probably well, this is why it's called a bridge too far. Mm. Lieutenant General Browning, who was in charge of the airborne, the the operation, yeah. played by Dirk Bogard, indeed, yeah. yes, he repeatedly said, "I always thought we were going a bridge too far," and that's he thought mm. was why the operation failed. But you don't get any sense of that at the beginning. He's totally. I mean, no, I suppose he would be. He says totally it at the end it. only. Yeah. Um, apparently, he said it earlier on, but. Oh. Now, while we're talking about uh, Browning and Bogart, we'll just—I want to say that Dirk Bogart's real name, because I did this with. Um, oh yeah, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> yeah. His real name was Derek Jules Gaspard Ulrich Niven Vanden Bogard. Wow. <laughs> but he fought in the war, Bogard, and he didn't like Germans of his, of that the generation that fought in the oh, war. Right. He was quite anti-German. He was... although particularly of that generation. Yeah. He was actually involved in Operation Market Garden. I wouldn't know He's that. He's the only one who was. And he said it's so strange at the end of actually seeing the events that he was involved in. He was he was in sort of military intelligence, I think, rather right. than being a front-line uh, fighter. Obviously, he wasn't a, 
a lieutenant general, but he was the only one who was actually involved in this operation. Okay, I, I do know that he, Bogard claimed that he was at the liberation of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Oh, right. But when people looked into that, they said actually he couldn't have been. So oh, there's some right. question over the veracity of that. Uh, there was another person involved in Market Garden, involved in the film, actually, and that's John Addison who did the music. Oh, right. He served in Market Garden. And he felt very close to this project because of that. Mm. And actually, I don't know if it was him who said, I think it was Richard Attenborough who said he felt as though Addison was writing a requiem for his uh, fallen comrades. Yeah. And they agreed that they wouldn't write any music for the battle scenes. Mm. So it was really related to the characters rather than the action. Mm. So there, was a, there were mainly themes based around the characters. Mm. But yeah, so I didn't know Bogart was as well. Um, and Browning, who Bogart's playing, oh, yeah. Lieutenant General Browning, is quite interesting. He married Daphne du Maurier, oh, right. the author of Rebecca. Yeah. And she was a friend of Bogart until she saw the depiction of her late husband, I think, because he died in 1965, in the film and hated it because he comes out of it fairly negatively, doesn't he? Yeah. He's quite... Well, the main thing is he ignores <clears throat> the Dutch resistance information. Yeah, that there are tanks. Uh, but we'll get them to that yeah, in a that's yeah. quite an important bit. But so, yeah, um, Daphne du Maurier was very critical, and and, um, uh, and I think Browning. Um, oh, no, uh, Bogard actually had second thoughts about it as well later, but th that, that broke up their relationship. But Browning also was an Olympic bobsleigh competitor. He, said <laughs> he um, competed in the 1928 Winterthur Olympics. The other thing about him, he's got that strange top. Yeah, so I wondered about yeah, that. Everyone else yeah. has got their what you'd expect. It's almost like a jumpsuit. He's got this sort of jumper with a zip at the top. Yeah, that was a top he designed himself. Oh really? <laughs> it was that his was his own unique. I was thinking, thing. surely, not Bogart, but Brown. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at it, thinking, why does he have such a different uniform? Yeah. And I wondered, you know, everyone's got their own pick of military uniforms. Well, he it. obviously had some kind of fashion interest because I think he's also the one who introduced the red berets. Or the you know the the sort of wine coloured berets oh, right. for the airborne forces, oh. which I think they have to this day. <laughs> so yes, that's Browning. Now, so yes, the Dutch resistance, which are and they focus on two characters. Well, yeah, two characters: a family, a father and a son. Yeah, who kind of represent the Dutch resistance, and they send back information to Britain that the Germans are stronger than yeah. they think. And the guy who gets this is quite an interesting character as well. Oh yes, uh, Major Fuller. That's right. His real name, he's based on a character called Major Brian Urquhart. Oh right. But they changed his name because so you'd have two Urquharts yeah. and it would get confusing, as if it wasn't confusing enough. <laughs> but yeah, so in the film he's, he's Major Fuller, played by Frank Grimes. And he's quite sceptical of Market Garden because he's getting this intelligence. Yeah. Well, he's presented as being quite a worrisome worrying character yeah anxious so, yeah and um there's a bit of tension between him and browning where major fuller says you know i seem to be the only person raising objections type thing but um at first browning says he's quite sympathetic to yeah him, he? he says he basically says you're the one who worries because you're you seem to be more intelligent than the rest of us yes, I, can't remember yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much yeah um, yeah but then we get a scene shortly after perhaps where it's deemed that Fuller is worrying too much. Yes. He gets a visit from the doctor who says, oh, 
old chap, maybe you've been working too hard, which seems a bit like a way of getting him out of the way. And now he's allowed to do another reconnaissance yes, trip yeah. and get some photos. And there's a great scene, one of my favourite scenes in the film, mm. where the boy is cycling along and over the brow of the hill behind him comes, I think it's a Spitfire. Yeah, low flying, very low Beautiful flying. shot where it just mm. rises up out of the ground mm. and flies over. And I find that I find it quite moving because the yeah. Dutch have been occupied for almost five years, four years yeah. or something. Well, five years, he says, because um, the boy actually says how old he was when... Um, ah, right, yes, yeah, when nine the and 14, came, that's yeah. right. And suddenly there's these little glimpse of something happening. Mm. So to see this symbol of British... Yeah, which is quite which is evocative power. anyway, yeah. the Spitfire, fly over. And it sees the boy, he's on his bicycle, and gives a little dip of the wings. Yeah, It's quite a moving moment. And he's just waving like anything. So he's waving at the Spitfire, the Spitfire goes over and then comes back. Yes. And then the boy looks at the undergrowth ahead and sees in it a load of tanks, yes. semi-covered. Yeah. And this connects to a scene slightly earlier, which I think is a brilliant setup, where the Germans are discussing what to do as part of their retreat. A new, um, I think it's Field Marshal Modal, yes. comes in. He's in charge of what's happening now after D-Day. All the Germans are... Um, low morale and they're thinking what can we do but he's brought in Newt and he says right we're going to try and take control of the situation one of the things we've got to do he says is we've got a panzer division which has been fighting too hard we need to give it a rest where can we give it a rest and they say well Arnhem so he says, okay well we'll bring this uh, panzer division by to Arnhem now this yeah. is a completely untactical move two divisions actually I think oh, it right, yeah. um, it's not done for the sake of defending Arnhem. It's just, it totally happens that it... So it's nothing that the Allies could predict, hmm. but it's a key decision, it turns out. Yes, yes. So this Spitfire has taken photographs, and mm. they go back, and Fuller yeah. shows Browning the photographs. Quite plainly, there are German panzer yeah. units. There's a German panzer unit hidden there, and Browning looks worried. Yeah but he can't... There's there's a line that people keep saying, I don't want to be the one to rock the boat, or I don't want to be the one to spoil the party, because this yeah. is going ahead. Yeah. Anyone who speaks out is going to be a... There's a kind of a joint bravado. There's lots of people probably thinking, well, I'm not sure about this, but yeah. I've got to go along with everyone else. And the the, the momentum is mm. happening. So, as you say, um, he gets sort of put on not very voluntary sick leave. <laughs> Whenever you read about history, there's always this debate about whether individuals make mm. history mm. or whether there are historical forces. Yeah. And in this, you feel that there is, there is a slight historical force. Everyone yeah. wants the war to end. Yeah. And so they, they blind themselves to the details, telling them that this particular operation isn't going to succeed. Yeah. And they just sort of cross their fingers. And it feels like a momentum. You yeah. Know, that it's, I don't think anyone's to blame but in a sense, a lot of people are to blame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to go back to Brian Urquhart, because I said he was an interesting character, and he he was, or is actually, I think he's still alive, amazingly. Right. The last we see of him is kind of, he's stressed out, slight tears in his eyes as he's got yeah. on sick leave. So he seems like slightly pathetic, not pathetic maybe, but yeah. certainly someone who's perhaps about to have a nervous breakdown because of the yes. conflicts he feels and the the fact that he seems to be a lone voice. But he wants to do the right thing. Yeah. See, he's a very admirable character. Mm. Um, he ate, later helped capture the Nazi nuclear scientist Wilhelm Groff. He helped set up the United Nations. I think he was the second member of the United Nations. Really? In 1945. 
he was the aide to its first and second secretaries. Um, didn't get on so well with the first secretary, but very uh, much liked and important to the second one. He came up with their blue helmets that oh, really? you see today. He was involved in setting up the peacekeeping forces in the Suez and Congo, where he was abducted and beaten, um, but managed to get out. And I think he's, he's still alive today and has <coughs> written several books on the United Nations. That's his biggest legacy. Oh, right. So I kind of just wanted to put that in there because he's he's fairly... Yeah, he's um, a minor character in this, but he's yeah. obviously had a much bigger role in in the world story. Indeed. And just going on to the Germans, you mentioned Modal. He was played by Walter Kohut. He was an Austrian. And he was married to Imi Schell, who was the sister of Maximilian Schell, who played General Bittrich. Oh, right. <laughs> now, the, I recognised Maximilian Schell. I didn't recognise yes. his face, but I oh, recognised his, his name because he played a character in Disney's The Black Hole. He played yes. the mad scientist who's on, in a spaceship hanging on the uh, edge of a black hole. Me, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Bittrich was quite interesting. He was uh, known as the most sarcastic man in Germany. <laughs> and he wasn't a great supporter of Hitler. He kind of went along. Um, there was even a, a time when there was a plot, there were several plots against Hitler, and, yeah. and on one of them he was approached and he did offer his men to support it. Oh, really? So um, he and he's quite honourable in the film, isn't he? Because yes, yeah. he's the one who allows the British to have um, some time to tend to their wounded and get their wounded out. Yeah, he gives them, a th I think, three hours. Yes, yeah. Where the other uh, German before that was saying no, out of the question. He comes yeah. along as, as the superior officer and changes that. Yeah. And also when Frost, when the when Arnhem is lost, yeah, and they're all captured, he's quite friendly towards yeah. the British. Yeah. There well, was sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say we keep on coming across this thing of good Germans and bad Germans. Yes, where there's the soldiers who stick to the the code of war. Yeah, and you know, once a, an enemy is defeated, they you know take them prisoner and treat yeah. them with respect. Yeah. And he's that sort of one. We're interested in that kind of. That's interesting. The good Germans yeah. and bad Germans because we're interested in those who were good because the it's again we've talked about this before the big question of just following orders yeah what would you do in that situation again it's this momentum mm. are you the lone voice that goes against it well you're probably going to end up in a concentration camp or a prisoner or certainly socially outcast at the very yeah. least so you had so he went along with it there was a real story of when the british put up their white flag at arnhem mm. and they came out a german Started, opened up his machine gun on them and an officer went over to the German and started kicking him a German officer yeah. went over to his own soldier and started kicking him saying, telling him can't you see the white flag so oh. perhaps a good German yes, yeah. <laughs> but with the Nuremberg trials afterwards mm. and war crimes that becomes a very important question yes. so these little acts you kind of hang on to them because you want you want to know there are people like that mm. and there were lots of um I mean, looking into this, just this film, and the background to it, there's some horrendous stories, yeah. what the Germans did, and there are also the things like allowing the British to leave, they did take prisoners, they didn't just mm. get the British and shoot them, they, yeah. were, they took plenty of prisoners, which is, when you're at war with someone... Is a is a it's the right thing to do and it's the honourable thing to do. Yeah. And it did happen. One of the most amazing scenes is where the planes take off. Oh yes, and fill the sky. Yeah, you've got a scene in a church where normal 
English people are um, having a service. Normal? <laughs> yeah, you know, sort of every, uh, not, not soldiers, I mean. <laughs> yes, civilians, yeah. yeah. Um, and they hear planes going over, and obviously they're worried, because it wouldn't have been on the news that there's going to no. be a, 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 a fly past. And they go out, and the sky is just full of bombers. Mm. And it's such a, an awe-inspiring scene. Just imagine yeah. walking out now and seeing the sky full of bombers. You, you know, what would you think? And that's based on a on um, a part of the book. That, so that's that actually oh, happened. Right. There's a bit of Cornelius Ryan's book where he talks about a particular sermon being given, and it was oh. just totally drowned out, and the whole congregation left to go and look outside. And of course, this is another thing about this operation because they're shifting so many people. They have to do it by day. Yeah. And there's a lot of there's several moments in this where operations should be conducted by night for instance but and they get moved on there's the crossing of a river later on and it has to be done by day which is completely insane and yeah because you obviously um you can be seen by the enemy but yeah uh, initially it goes all right because this first parachute amazingly well yeah they're not they're not (laughs) spotted later on there's parachutes being gunned down but this time they all land and we've got you know that scene in paths of glory where the general's walking along the trenches Mm. saying hello to men we get a similar scene here where Edward Fox's character, mm. um, uh, Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks, Horrocks is driving yeah. along with Michael Caine's character, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Vandeleur, who's head of the Irish Guards. Yeah. They're in, I presume they're in Belgium. They're on the end of this road with an awful lot of vehicles. Yeah. And they're driving past the vehicles and um, Edward Fox's character is saying, oh, hello, Jimmy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> glad to see you know where we're going. Because yeah. <laughs> they've obviously decorated the tanks. Yeah, Berlin or Bust or something. But one thing to say about this is that the road that they're going to follow to get to Arnhem is only a single carriageway. Yeah. And they've got an awful lot of vehicles. Yeah. And one thing I, I saw in a documentary about this um, is saying one of the inaccuracies in this film is you wouldn't have tanks that close together right. if they're travelling in convoy. You'd have yeah. them a lot further apart. I don't know if it's because of their firepower or because of the risk of being hit. So one of the problems that the Allies experience is traffic jams, which right. isn't something you think about in a, a war film, you know. Yeah. But um, just being able to get the equipment they need to the front yes. is a, a major task. Yeah, yeah. Um, that speech that Horrocks gives... Um, yeah, this is a story you'll tell your grandchildren. Oh, yeah. A lot of those lines he actually said oh, historically right. are from um, Horrocks. That's a, that's a Richard the Third sort of line, though. Not Richard the Third, Henry the <laughs> Fifth. Sorry. Right. Yes. You yes. Know, yes. Uh, so you'll remember this one day. Yeah. Um, he didn't. Not the bit about the cavalry. He didn't say. Don't you? I oh, like right. to see this as. And that's interesting. William Goldman said. He said today people wouldn't understand that. Um, if you if you're seeped in the films of that. You know, people who saw this film in 1977 knew about westerns. Yeah. The Indians, I'm doing air quotes, Native Americans, <laughs> uh, and the cavalry. Yeah. He said people today wouldn't, they think, cavalry. I'm not, I don't know if that's true, but maybe that's just because I know yeah. I saw westerns and understand <laughs> it. But that was a point he made. Uh, gentlemen, I'm not saying that this will be the easiest party that we've ever attended. But I still wouldn't miss it for the world. I like to think of this as one of those American Western films. The paratroops, lacking substantial equipment, always short of food, these are the besieged homesteaders. The Germans, well, naturally, they're the bad guys. And 30 Corps, we, my friends, are the cavalry on the way to the rescue. 
Edward Fox was in Oh What a Lovely War in 69, which was a Rich Attenborough film. Oh, yeah. He was also in the sequel to The Guns of Navarone, Force 10 from Navarone. Oh, yes. And in another Attenborough film, he was in Gandhi in 1982. Right. Roger Moore was the first choice to play Horrocks. Oh, really? Yeah. Should I say, oh, really? Yeah, but he was too busy with... <laughs> Sorry, that was a terrible impression. That's right, the eyebrow was good. <laughs> um, he was busy with The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Edward Fox was actually a friend of Horrocks uh, and knew him. Oh, right. So, that's in- so he wanted to do a very good job of getting him right. Yeah. Horrocks was in World War One, as a lot of these generals were. Uh, he served in the Russian Revolution, supporting the White Army, because the British sent a contingent to help. He was also in the Olympics. He was a pentathlete in the 1924 <laughs> Olympics. Good Lord. He was Black Rod in the House of Lords in 1949-63, and he did some TV presenting in the 60s. What? And he also advised on this film. He died in 1985. So uh, just interesting yeah. to know the characters behind these and what happened afterwards, you know. And Michael Caine. Now, he has been in three of our films. So he was in The Man Who Would Be King. Right, yeah. Oh. He's in this one. Yeah. And actually, he he is in um, The Eagle Has Landed, which we're going to do. He's also in Zulu, isn't he? Oh, Zulu, yes, that's four, yeah. isn't it? In fact, Zulu was... That wasn't the film that made... I can't remember if that was the film that made him or the um, the Ipcress file. Um, Zulu was the year before. Oh, right. Uh, 64, and the Ipcress yeah. file was 65. He was in Alfie in 66, so in the 1960s. Yeah. The Italian Job in 69. <clears throat> Mm. Get Carter 71 The Man Who Would Be King 75 The Eagles Landed which we're doing mm. 1976 so that was just before this one mm. so yes you can see the calibre of the stars are in this yeah. film they were major major stars so the 30th Corps 30 they Corps. see the witness the wave of aircraft go over yeah. and then off they start as well yes, yeah. uh, incredible the the parachute landing which you've already talked about which yeah. is we do see all these parachutists and we also see a, cam- a camera going down with one of the parachutists. Yes, I think I they had three cameras up in the air or something. Yeah. They only had one accident, apparently. One guy landed quite... Mm. Sp- I think he broke his arm or something. And I, yeah. I believe the the crew were worried about him and one of the sergeants or officers came up and said, you know, that's his job. <laughs> and yeah. he got taken <laughs> off in an ambulance. But there were a couple of real stories that made me chuckle from the book. Oh, right. Um, which aren't in the film. In the aircraft, you see a guy with a chicken. Mm. You said weird, that's Alan tr- Armstrong. That's yes, that's true. There was, oh, right. and there was a couple of other pets that went as well. Another guy after the landing was spotted by an officer carrying a dead quail. He said, "What are you doing with that?" And he'd landed on it and decided killed <laughs> it and decided to keep it for food. Yeah. Another guy landed on the wing of a landed glider, which bounced up acting as a trampoline and he went way up back in the air on his parachute <laughs> and then just landed really gently on his feet <laughs> but there were stories like that made me laugh wow. quite funny I wondered about the chicken because you never see it again <laughs> no no yeah there were some other stories about pets that were taken as well it's just you know you're going into war I'm going to take this chicken as if you yeah. haven't these men had a huge weight of equipment to mm. carry with them yeah uh, so and they, they I think they had to be very careful about dropping some of this equipment on a rope from their legs before they landed. I saw that, yeah, with a, a gun or something. Someone's rifle was... Various yeah. things, I don't yeah. know, but uh, if you didn't do that, you had a chance of injury. Oh, right. But, um, yeah, anyway, that was all part of it. So when they land, we see Sean Connery's men are all gathered, and one of the things that is going to prove to be a major complication later on is that all the radios they've got 
have been yeah. fitted with the wrong crystals. Uh, this is something which uh, a modern viewer <laughs> uh, might might not really understand. It's just how important and difficult communications were then. Why did they, they just use their mobile yeah. phones? <laughs> uh, just how... Uh, this is one of the things I like about war films, seeing them now, is because I always used to have such a simplistic view of war. Yeah. You know, I thought battles happen in a battlefield, so you'll have the goodies and baddies on each side of a field and they'll just fight each other. But things like this film show just how small things like the geography mm. affect the complete outcome. The and one weather. of the things, yeah, one of the yeah. things is just being able to get a message through to find out what's going on elsewhere. Yeah. So, of course, we're jumping around in the film seeing what everything's happening yes so you don't get the sense of sean connery's character saying well i don't know what's going on now yeah should i go ahead should you know are we surrounded by germans what's happening and they all had problems with their radios mm. um there was i saw an interview with a guy who lived a dutch chap and he said i think one of the things was the the ground there clay or whatever the the, the sand whatever yeah. was in there was full of iron it was very rich in iron oh, really and he said he could never listen to the radio it was only recently when they got cable really you know in the modern age that yeah. he actually was able to listen to proper radio it was always bad so it wasn't just the wrong crystals it was the fact that it was geographically yeah rubbish for you know radio yeah. waves or whatever and that was the only sort of communication they had the two characters who are in charge of the radio are quite funny aren't they and when they're preparing yeah. He's one of the ones who says, I don't want to rock. They're, they're kind of aware that... Yeah, someone's going to go... Because he says, these, these radios have been tested for... You know, they'll go, they'll travel for eight miles. And he says, yeah, but you tested them in a desert. Yes. This is a country full of trees and water and obviously yeah. all things which absorb exactly. radio signals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As they're having their biscuits. There's a very... The British are very British, aren't they? You've got those two with their tea and biscuits and mm. old chap. And the other interesting character is Anthony Hopkins who plays oh, yeah. uh, John Frost yeah um, now I saw the Lieutenant actual um, Lieutenant Colonel John Frost in a documentary oh right and he's very posh British and um, um, so he's exactly like Anthony Hopkins character who when we first see him he's prepared he says oh have you packed my dinner jacket and mm. golf clubs <laughs> Yes. Um, so he's obviously expecting. Uh, oh, and he's got a little bugle that he yeah. blows. That's his uh, yes. oddity. <laughs> all true. All, yeah. all true stuff. Now, Anthony Hopkins. So he was in Young Winston in '72, which was another Attenborough oh. film. Oh right. He's in The Elephant Man, Science of the Lambs, of course. He was in Chaplin. Uh, I think he plays the biographer. I can't remember. Remains of the Day. Yes. Um, Merchant the, Ivory. Yes, yeah. The Shadowlands. Yeah. Which was Attenborough. Was that the one about... Um, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, Frost is an interesting... He's kind of... He's, he seems quite kind of cold and mm. correct. Yeah. There's not much emotion from him throughout the film, but he's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And he was an advisor on the film. Yeah. I, I saw him... Um, in this documentary I saw, he's he's there at the, the Arnhem Bridge, or the equivalent in this... You know, seeing the scenes, which obviously he witnessed first Well, he was at the... The Being... bridge was named John Frost Bridge, oh, which really? he was quite embarrassed about. Oh. But today it's named Bron John Frost Bridge. Yeah. So he was saying he was looking back on these, the events that he actually was part of. Mm. And he, he, he says he doesn't remember the the horrible things so much. So right. he's obviously one of these people who's, you know, um, wasn't so traumatised by it, even though yeah, could potentially well, or, or blanked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the other option. He seems to be a fairly, I think, typical of British officers. They're 
there's pride in what they do, mm. but there's also a kind of humbleness, whether that's true or faux. Well, there's a story that um, Anthony Hopkins told where he says in a later scene where they're at Arnhem Bridge mm. and he's got to, John Frost has got to cross from one building to another. He says, yes. uh, Anthony Hopkins said, well, I did what I thought I'd do, which is run as fast <laughs> as I can so as not to get shot. Yeah. yeah, But John Frost told him that what you'd actually do is you'd walk out slightly slowly, so daring, you know, saying you're being contemptuous of the Germans. You're saying you're not going to shoot me. <laughs> yeah, I think that was fairly unique to Frost. Oh, right. Um, he said, I never ran. And yeah. they checked with some of the other soldiers he served with. He said, yeah, no, he never ran. Mm. Another another interesting story from that is, you know the scene where the German comes across the bridge with a white flag? Yes, yeah. And he says, um, we want to talk about surrender. Yeah. And I don't know whether they're, the British say, we don't have the facilities to take you all. Yeah, it's deliberately un- misunderstanding Deliberate. I don't yeah. know, is it deliberate? I'm sure they're, they're being humorous, uh, you know, pretending that they're in such a strong position yeah. that, um, that the Germans are surrendering to them, where in fact the Germans are offering them the chance to surrender. Well, apparently Frost said that line, but he uh, asked right. for him not to say it in the film. He said, I don't want to... Because he's worried his friends would think he was being e- egotistical. <laughs> right. Um, and so the solution was they gave it to his runner. Yeah, um, the man with the umbrella. Yeah, because William Goldman said, well, do you mind being present while the line is spoken? He said no. Yeah. So that's why he, the other guy got it. But apparently it was Frost who said that. Yeah. With a, a highlight of some of the dialogue in the film. There's an awful lot of scenes which happen, which it's difficult to recall exactly where, they're, where they are. There's one yeah. scene I wanted to mention, which is when one of the gliders or planes has crashed, a German soldier goes in and discovers... Plans, maps, yeah. details, yeah. which were supposed to have been left in Britain. I think it says on the front, how market garden works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is similar to a scene in um, Platoon, you know, where they discover the maps, but there they're booby trapped. Oh, yes, yeah. So he takes these to General Modal, yeah. um, who is the typical general who thinks he knows it all. And he, he says, This is obviously a deception. I was thinking at the time, Oh, God, they're going to know everything now. Mm. But General Modal, who's. This is the second major thing that he's misunderstood because when he hears that the allied forces are coming he says there's nothing important to arnhem wait i'm at arnhem <laughs> That's brilliant. they're coming for me yes i'm important here yeah. but here he says oh these maps are obviously a fake mm. even and so that's at one point where the whole thing could have been given up but yeah. a, a dumb general you know there's so many i don't uh, not you know lieutenant general field marshal whatever yeah, you know the yeah. people at the top who don't understand but he is advised by ludwig and yeah. who, who's the SS guy, German in black. I think he's a panzer. He's the head of the panzer division. Right. I thought, is he SS? But actually, he's panzer division. I think he is SS as well. Oh, is he? But, and Bittrick as well. Yeah. Both say, are saying they're coming for the bridges. Yeah. You know, and even advise destroying the bridges. Yeah, he they're constantly that, saying. He dismisses it. Yeah. That's true. I'll just talk about... Karl Ludwig, Hardy Kruger. Yes. He was actually in the German forces. He was. But he was... Right near the end of the war, he says, um, when the Germans were getting desperate for more soldiers, they recruited old men and Hitler youth, which is actually something they say at the beginning of this film. Browning, I think, says Arnhem will only, you know, there won't be any strong forces there. It's just old men and young boys. Mm. Well, Hardy Kruger was one of the young boys. He was in the Hitler youth when he was brought into the war as a very young man, apparently. Yes, and he was captured by the US forces. Oh, right. So he plays Major General Ludwig, who is a fictional character, but he was pretty much 
based well it's a fictional name mm. he was based on Heinz Harmel uh, who didn't want his name in the film but he, he did tell his story to Cornelius Ryan oh right he was in the Waffen SS he was a prisoner of war in the UK for two years and then was a salesman in Germany <laughs> right he died in 2000 so one of the yeah. longer living of those characters but he does actually decide to blow on the bridges on his mm. own uh, volition doesn't he? he yeah he or to attempt to. Uh, is it Nijmegen Bridge, I think, isn't it? Yeah. It's the big one before Arnhem, so it's Nijmegen. Yeah, Nijmegen. He has got it all wired up. Yeah. And as the bridges come across, they plunge the plunger and nothing happens, so... Mm. And he says nothing can stop them now. Yeah. Not quite true. Oh, there is another bridge. I think it's the one at Son. Yes. It, that does get blown up. Yes, just as this Elliot Gould we, is running yeah. towards it. That's a, a rare comic moment where yeah. they see the bridge. Elliot Gould is Colonel Bobby Stout. He he sees the bridge ahead and it's not held. You know, there's no Germans in sight, so they're all running towards it. And he <laughs> runs faster to be the one who He's crosses it. He's pushing them out of the way, yeah. isn't he? It's fantastic. So it's a comic moment. And then as they get inside of it, it's blown up. Yeah. And he, he says, right, we need some of that Bailey stuff. Yeah. Which is uh, that uh, marvel of British engineering, <laughs> which is the sort of instant bridge. The instant bridge, yeah. Um, which isn't as instant as he'd like, obviously. <laughs> Elliot Gould playing Colonel Stout was based, again, on, on there was no Stout, but he was based on Robert Sink, uh, who served in Korea and Vietnam. And just a little connection with Platoon. Colonel Sink. Right. Was play was appeared. Do you remember the Band of Brothers, the Spielberg? Yeah, didn't see it. Oh, it oh. I watched it. It was very good. Right. He appeared in that, and he was played by Dale Dye, who was the main military advisor of Platoon. He's the one who wrote the novelization. Oh right, and who played played the captain as well. Yeah, he was actually in Vietnam as well. So Dale Dye, if you remember him, he played Sink in Band of Brothers. Oh right, <laughs> <laughs> and Elliot Gould, of course, was in Friends. Ross and, and Monica's father and Mash yeah. or the film rather than the TV series yes 1970 yeah uh, yeah. Very, he's, he's kind of comic there's another great scene where he eventually ca- he's after these Bailey bridges yeah and he catches up with the British I, I guess he goes back to Eindhoven yes so the 30 Corps have reached Eindhoven the Dutch crowds have come out they think it's almost like a liberation, liberation. this is the end of the war and they're repeating yeah. it like a, a victory parade yes I mean, Which is actually wonderful. slowing down the forces. Well, saying. it is, but it's it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, they moment. must have been just waiting for the Allies to yes. roll through. Yeah. And, uh, in the book, they talk about how the Dutch citizens rifled through their stuff to get every bit of orange uh, cloth they could uh. to go out. There was some disaster as well, though, because before the British started on the highway, yeah, and before the operation, they barrage which you don't see in the film the only thing you see in the film of that is the i'm going to use the word lunatic here which i know is not right the lunatic asylum the mental health patients yeah they come out and they're kind of yeah. laughing at sean connery aren't they yeah that was destroyed by the allies oh right yeah because that's not really explained yeah. no <laughs> and there were dutch citizens killed in that uh, yeah. original bo- actually it was bombing raids there's a story of a Dutch man working out out in the fields and he sees the bombs going off in his hometown and he rushes back and finds his uh, son, uh, uh, his arms blown off. He's still alive, his 14-year-old son lying in the rubble, his arms off, his sides open and, and you know, he says, I can't feel my arm because oh it's lying God. nowhere. And the dad says, oh, it's because you're lying on it. And he tries to get him to hospital and he dies, unfortunately. Uh, you know, very sad story, but yeah. that is the truth of what happened so there was that aspect to it as well as as the euphoria of the British 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I was talking about a slightly a lighter moment of levity where Elliot Gould yeah. catches up with, is it uh, Michael Caine? Yes, it? yeah, Vandela. That's where he says, do you mean that marvel of British engineering? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yes, he gets those bridges. And Well, what's happened is um, Michael Caine's character is finding it. He's trying to bring the Bailey bridges to Elliot Gould. Mm but he's being slowed down by the victory parade. Right. Uh, but Elliot Gould says, oh, I've thought of that. I've got, I've oh, cleared yes. another road yes. so that you can get them through right. quickly. Now, at, th- at this point, we're told that already the operation is, speed was of the essence, but we're already, you know, 16 or 32 hours behind. Yeah. Things have been going wrong. Well, because we didn't talk about this amazing scene. As soon mm. as 30 Corps get going, they come across a strong force of Germans in mm. the forest. Yeah. And the, the lead tank is exploded, is, yes, is fired yeah. upon. Well, they they all are. And so they have to have a pitched battle. Mm. Goodness knows how how many miles, you know, hardly any. And that's when they, they release purple smoke, which is the signal to bring in bombers. Yeah. yeah. But that's one of these scenes, you're talking about the explosions. Yes. <laughs> it's just, there's this creeping forward, the artillery fires, and explosions get closer and closer to the forest. Utterly amazing yeah. uh, explosions and... Just an amazing scene. The devastation, and particularly later when we get to Arnhem Bridge, which was actually filmed somewhere else, which looked yeah. like Arnhem. Yeah, Deventer yeah. or something. You know, the whole place is just destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> well, the bridge at Deventer, which they use for Arnhem, yeah. at one end of it, because Arnhem was too modern, yeah. and there was too too many modern buildings and stuff, the Arnhem Bridge was destroyed three times in the Second World War, I think. <sighs> So they found this bridge that was very similar in, in a smaller town that they were able to use. At one end of it was a car park, and they built a set on that car park, uh, which right. was the buildings right. that you see getting destroyed and that Frost and his men are hiding out in. Yeah. So that was very fortuitous for that. Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember why I went. Oh yes, why they why they were Thirtieth Corps were, were behind was because of this battle. Yes, as one thing. Immediately get. Um... There's another scene. Just I'm, I'm I'm going. I'm looking at the map and thinking. <laughs> what else happened in the Eindhoven? So the 101st Airborne, the Americans, are the ones that have landed just north of Eindhoven. Yeah. And you know, the Elliot Gould liberating the Son Bridge, which explodes. The other main character with the 101st is James Kahn, who we haven't talked about. Yes. So James Kahn plays Sergeant Eddie Dohan. Yeah. Just looking at Kahn, he was in previous to Bridge Too Far. He was in The Godfather, Rollerball. I like Rollerball. Um, I just want to mention The Killer Elite which is not a famous film but I like to say to people whenever they mention James Caan I go oh I've met James Caan and it's not actually true it's a lie but (laughs) I'm always going to I'm going to keep saying it I was in the same room as James Caan good lord yeah I think that's that's good isn't it so I say (laughs) I I just um, promote that to I've met him (laughs) Um, but I haven't because when I lived in America in the mid-80s, I did karate mm. uh, under a Japanese teacher called Takeyuki Kubota. And Kubota was in this film, Killer Elite, which is where James Khan met him. And James Khan started training in karate under yeah. him and is now a sixth dan or something. So this was at the um, one of the International Karate Association, which is Kubota's organization, one of his annual tournaments. Uh, and party, general parties. Yeah. He's got a very international organisation. James Kahn was there. Mm. Um, so I met him. <laughs> um, I, I looked at him for a few feet. <laughs> so I like to always mention the Killer Elite. When <laughs> um, this is, whenever I see this film, I always think, was this story true? Because his captain yeah. 
and played by Nicholas Campbell, who I think was Johnson, Legs Johnson was the real character, is a kind of alcoholic. Well, well, he's he's very nervous. Yeah. And he says, you guarantee me that very I'm not going to die. Yeah. Yes. I always thought that Dohan was his senior. Yeah. But actually, it's it's the young chap who's the captain. Oh, really? Now, I don't know if they changed it for the film, but in reality, Dohan was his runner. So that's the background. He gar- yeah. guarantee me that I won't die. He's really nervous. Um, he says, I guarantee it. Now, we ne- we meet James Kahn. He's looking. He's heard they, you know, the... Um, 101st have been involved in action battle. Yeah. There's a scene where he finds his body. He's been shot in the head. Johnson's yeah. been shot in the head. James Kahn grabs him, takes him through a German infested forest. An excellent scene mm. to the medical unit. Yeah. And insists to the surgeon that he has a look at him. Yeah. The surgeon says, no, he's dead. Put him with the others. Yeah, and you see a line of corpses, line basically. Of corpses, yeah. So James Kahn pulls a gun on him mm. and says, you know, see right. to him. Yeah. The surgeon has no choice, looks at him and says, son of a bitch, she's still alive, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he saves him. Yeah. And I always wondered, is that true? Yeah. I haven't got to that part in the book. Oh, right. Yet. But it, it is true. Oh. Ish. Ish, <laughs> all right. So, Eddie Dohan was, well, Dohan, I think Eddie, he actually had a different first name, was his runner. And what happened was, Johnson, yeah, was wounded in the leg. And was evacuated on the hood of a jeep. Right. Um, but while he was being evacuated, he was shot in the head. Oh. Uh, his brains were showing and everything. And he, they thought, well, he's a goner. So they put him with the dead. Dohan, being his runner, came... What he actually came looking for him was he knew he had a lot of cash on him. And it wasn't to steal it. Oh, it right. was He was worried someone else was going to steal right. his money. So yeah. he was going to take it to make sure it went to the right people. <clears throat> and saw... That even though his brain was hanging out or whatever, that he was still breathing. So he took him to the surgeon. He did pull a gun on him. Really? It was a imitation Luger. He had actually quite a small gun. Oh. They saw his his he was still alive, and they did save him. And he regained consciousness six weeks after the operation. Oh my god! I think this from the what I quickly read. The surgeon did report him, but it was the military policeman who put him under arrest just for one minute, not ten seconds. Or right. Yeah. And then let him go. Oh, now I didn't know that because <laughs> I, I must say, watching I've watched this film twice before. Yeah, and that, that was my least favourite part of the film. Right, oh, really? I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Because watching this film, I, I almost feel as though it's like two films going on, yes. battling with each other. There's a British film and an American <laughs> film. Yes, the British film <laughs> is a lot, and of course, this is my cultural bias. Yeah. The British film is a lot of reserve and understatement. Yeah. So you get, for instance, Anthony Hopkins' character being very, you know, very stiff-faced and yeah. with a, a bit of humour and understatement saying, oh, yeah, we could do with some help here while they're being yeah. barraged by tanks. <laughs> yes. Whereas the Americans, um, the American stars, all have their moment where, I think this is almost true of all of them, where they have a go at someone, usually a British person, saying, yeah. why are you so tight-ass? You, know, <laughs> you just want a cup of tea and all this. <laughs> Even though usually in that situation it's being unfair, but yeah. they always have this heroic moment, mm. whereas the British have an understated moment. That's interesting. That's very interesting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this one, I thought, seemed to me... I didn't know it was true at all. No, well, it I seemed didn't to be I... so much... Like part of another film, yeah. it felt like part of a heroic war film. Yeah. Which, if you'd seen it in like the Guns of Navarone, would have made sense. But here, part of the documentary feel of the rest of the film 
made it stand out to me as being that wouldn't happen. Yeah. So I'm amazed that it did happen. Yeah. Well, it it, it was changed. Yeah. Um. So it's, it, he didn't go and personally save him. Yeah. So that was. But I mean, the gun. That's the thing. I thought, no, yes. surely not. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you know. Um, By the way, did you Johnson, the young captain? Did you recognise him from anything else? No. He played the serial killer policeman in the Dead Zone. Oh, good. one of my favourite films. Oh. That's um, yeah. Do you recognise? Do, yeah. do you remember that? Anyway, I, I've seen that recently, which uh, is you might not have seen it for a while. Well, I'll tell you as we're leaping around a bit. There's another. Uh, there's a few minor. Yeah. Obviously, there's, there's there's stars here which everyone oh, yeah. recognises, yeah. and there's a few other actors who I think later become famous. Like I've already mentioned Alan Armstrong, which was the bloke with the chicken, yeah. <laughs> and the, the chicken as well went on to quite a few big roles. In, um... He was in Chicken Run, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> or was a Chicken Advisor. <laughs> there's also John Ratzenberger later on, who was in Cheers. Yeah, I can't remember his name um, in Cheers. Um, but, Cliff. Yeah, Cliff. Yeah, because hey, I can. Norm. Yeah, uh, can I just say something? He, he was he was played uh, Lieutenant Magellus. Oh right, and he was playing an actual person called Magellus. Now in the film, Cliff. Yeah, Norm. <laughs> um, he, he gets shot in the eye, doesn't he? And dies. Yeah, he dies. Yeah, yeah. The actual Magellus survived the war and was even awarded the DSC for his action at N- Nijmegen. And is the most decorated officer in the history of the 82nd Airborne Division during World War Two. Blimey! So he didn't get shot in the eye. Anyway, um, yes. so so there's one. Um, there's an actor called John Salthouse who was in Abigail's Party and The Bill. In Abigail's Party, he plays a husband who's very, very tight and is he angry. The, foo- the footballer. He I can't used remember to play the red-headed one. Yeah. Oh yeah, brilliant. Oh, I was he in this? I saw. I saw the first C series of The Bill, mm. and he's brilliant in it because he's so. Like pent up fury. He was in the bill. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Now, do you remember him in this film? Now, there's there's at one point where Sean Connery's men are have retreated to a house, and they're saying that the British are dropping supplies, but they're too far away. Now I know who you mean. And they see one land, and so this bloke runs out and grabs this supply container. Yeah. And they're all cheering him on, and he starts to run back, and he gets shot. Yeah. And it opens, and it just turns to be full of oh, berets. Great scene. Yeah. Oh, the, but that the is, pathos. Um, the pathos. That's John Salthouse. <laughs> oh, I was reading about him recently, actually. Oh, yeah, because um, yeah, he, he, in Abigail's party, I think his character background is that he was almost a professional footballer and then had an injury. Yeah. And that's his, he was yes. actually trialled for Crystal Palace or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, there were about 50 actors in this film who were extras. There, there were different kinds of extras. There were extras who were just in the crowd. Mm. There were also about 50 actors who were called Attenborough's army or something <laughs> who were trained by the army so mm. they could use guns and everything. They played Germans and British. Yeah. And one of the funny stories about them is that a lot of them became quite famous actors right. afterwards. They mm. were all young men in this but they, if their face appeared too strongly in a scene, they couldn't be used again because they couldn't play a British yeah, and then a person to be seen and then a German. But because they were enjoying the film so much and wanted the work, what they do is if if they would hide, do anything to hide their face. So as an example, <laughs> let's say one of them was playing a German. Yeah, they'd be running towards the camera and they'd get shot. They they'd fling their arms up, twist. Pull the helmet over their face and then fall down, so that they their their 
visage was not <laughs> shown on the screen. So that's the Bailey Bridge. If we move on to Nijmegen, the general here is Brigadier General Gavin, played by Ryan O'Neill. Yes. And his story is quite interesting uh, in this film. He lands, he's one of the, the main generals at the beginning, mm. who's, who's, uh, well, he's Brigadier General. And when he lands, he injures himself. Yes, yeah, injures his back. Yes, yeah. there's a good scene later relating to your your um, interesting point about American and British, yeah. <laughs> where he comes up to the British and he's he's you know this isn't happening, rah, 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 rah. and his Dutch advisor says, "I'm sorry about that. I think he um, might have cracked his spine when he landed." Because yeah. the British are all, "What's this yank yeah. telling us?" And then they they kind of look at him and see him holding his back, and he's asking for boats at that point. Didn't yeah, they? and nothing seems to be going right. And actually, Gavin did. He thought he just injured himself. It was several weeks <coughs> later, or even, no, I think it was something like five months later. He actually discovered he he was still having trouble and discovered that he um, cracked two vertebrae oh, during okay. that landing. So, yeah, Ryan O'Neill he made his name in Love Story in 1970. He was in Paper Moon and Barry Lyndon, which was um, oh uh, yeah Kubrick Kubrick film. Right, yeah. General Gavin is interesting. He reportedly had an affair with Marlena Dietrich. <gasps> Yes, he landed in the film. He lands on grass and hurts himself. Yeah, he actually landed on pavement oh. in reality yeah. and fractured two discs. He was later ambassador to France in the early sixties. Um, he was an advisor on the film. Now, th- I find this is interesting. He was played by Ryan O'Neill. Yeah. In the Longest Day, he's also a character, and he was played by Robert Ryan. Both of those books were written by Cornelius Ryan. Brigadier General Gavin's real name was actually Ryan. His surname was <laughs> right. Ryan. He was ado- He was born illegitimate to a mother who was called Ryan, and he was adopted by the Gavin family. Oh. So he was a Ryan. He was played by Ryan O'Neill and Robert Ryan, and the book was written by Cornelius Ryan. If that doesn't prove that 9-11 was an inside <laughs> job, then I don't know what these conspiracy theorists are all about. <laughs> Yeah, but he's good in this film. Yeah, all, yeah. all the actors are yes, good, yeah, aren't they? Um, yeah. Even though they're big stars. Yeah, of course that leads on to the what I've heard described as in reality was the most heroic thing anyone has ever seen. This this actual advisor to the to the film said it was the most heroic action he'd ever seen, which is crossing the the, the, the Nijmegen Bridge, cross, crossing the river Val. Yeah, Val. Yeah, Val. Because what they someone says in order to take a bridge. You've got to take both sides. Yes. Until you do that, you haven't got the bridge. And yeah. also, because the enemy can just blow it up. So, when they come to take Nijmegen Bridge, they send some people over by boat to try and take the other side. Um, and, of course, this is Robert Redford. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, I'm sure I heard that, in actual fact, this was a, it was British troops who did it. No, I don't think so. Oh, right. No. Um, well, ah... They got the boats, yeah. Right, the flat-bottomed boats. Each boat had a three-man crew, right, which would probably be British. Oh, okay, and, right. But it was the Americans who went across. Yeah. So anyway, so they. Um... The reason they had each boat came with three men and three paddles. Yeah. And the reason being that the boats had to get back across. You see, generally speaking, oh, that's why each boat came with. Oh, Normally, yes. it wouldn't be a one-way trip. Yeah. So they drop off the men and go back. Yeah. But this is one of the. This is almost like a, um, a mission in. Um, 
sort of submission. Yeah, submission. <laughs> That's the wrong word. Just like the the whole big mission, it goes wrong from the start. They say, right, we want you to cross this river to get to the other side, and it's going to be at night. Of course. But then the bridges, the boats haven't arrived, so it gets put uh, off to nine. There's a succession of scenes where they discuss yeah. it happening, and each time the time has moved from nine to eleven to midday. Yeah. So they're going to do this crossing in full view of the Germans. Yeah. So they're basically you're going to get shot to pieces. You mm. know it. Which is, I can understand why it was described as one of the most heroic actions of the, um, you know, this, this man had seen. The, the British did provide a tank fire. Yeah. For smoke. Yeah. But the wind was so strong oh. that um, there was hardly any smoke, so they were in full view. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a tour guide in Nijmegen who does tours of this thing, he said to his crowd of ten people who were... Mm. He said, if you all lit up a cigar now, that would be more smoke than they had at Nijmegen. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Robert Redford was probably the biggest star of the time this film mm. had. I think he, he... They wanted Steve McQueen. Oh, right. Because he was... Yeah. Mass, he was the big star, but they asked for too much money, and uh, I think something like six million to appear in this and another film at the time. And Levine had to buy his house, <laughs> the Queen's house, which he was having trouble selling. <sighs> so then, though, they got Rob Redford, who was a big star. Yeah, he and worked in... with William Goldman in um, All the yeah. President's Men. Yes, yes. And Butch Cassidy was he in Butch Cassidy? And the Sundance Kid, yes. yes yeah. And the Sting and the Great Gatsby, all before, all mm. in the seventies. So yeah, um, Robert Redford appears quite late in the film, doesn't he? Yeah, that's um, one of the things that he's only there for a short time. He's yeah. not. He's not. A lot he, of the others are in throughout the film. He doesn't even get like you'd expect a sort of a brief glimpse near the beginning of the film, just to say, "Hey, Robert Redford's no. in this film." Yeah, you know. Um, I guess he was on this. He was. His name was big. Yes. Yeah. On this scene, they get across those who survive mm. it's a great scene where they run up the side of the bridge and they they do take it did you notice the germans you know talking about old men and boys one of the germans is almost a baby really? he must have been a 12 year old kid <laughs> I, I need to pause the film and you oh, see it there's a bit that. where germans in a foxhole firing yeah. them and it's a child <laughs> and i i wonder i just wondered if attenborough used an actual sort of 12 year old child yeah to to accentuate he's only there for a flash yeah to accentuate the fact that this is the yeah the children and you know all yeah, the young old boys and children yeah just to give a sense of how young they are but that's another great scene yeah this is where carl ludwig general carl ludwig says right blow up the bridge even though he's been told by um field marshal Modell not right, to yeah. He's obviously determined that the Allies aren't going to get through. Yes. So they press the plunger. And I'm not never sure why it doesn't go off. Maybe it just... Something happened. One of those things, it must happen. <laughs> the strange thing is, of course, that um, Robert Redford's character is crossing the bridge at that point. Yeah. So you'd expect him to accentuate his heroism by being the one who saves the bridge. Yeah. You know, but they obviously decided to stick to the facts rather than... Yes, very uh, much is, so. Uh, yeah, and and a point cool. about that is that... Um, I think William Goldman said this... Richard Attenborough was very aware that people who were involved in the campaign mm. were still alive and were going to see this yes. and wanted to be true to the book. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it mostly is, you know, 95%. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to remind me, mentioning Germans there, there's a funny story which I thought was worth telling, is with all the organisation, mm. and they had, for the Germans were played, the, the lead characters were played by Austrians and Germans, and this driver went to collect one of these actors, an Austrian or German, from Amsterdam Airport or something. Right. Didn't know didn't know who he was, so just had his name up on a board. 
and a German guy he picked up this German yeah. chap brought him all the way back he got foot- fitted up in a Nazi <laughs> outfit and then went to meet Richard Attenborough because Richard Attenborough was a very nice person yes, and he was yeah. brilliant with actors and yes, always said yeah. and stuff at this point they discovered he wasn't the actor he was actually the East German agricultural minister <laughs> And so he was apologised, he was taken out and taken back. But the guy who told the story said, he, I'm just amazed he never said anything, even when he was being put in a Nazi uniform. <laughs> Obviously that's diplomats for you. Just, <laughs> just keep calm. Yeah, great story. Yeah. Anyway, so after the bridge is taken, this is one of the points that gets my goat a bit. Right. Robert Redford has a go. At the, the British tanks yes. come over. Yeah. And Robert Redford has a real go at him. Those are British troops at Arnhem. They're hurt bad. You're not going to stop. Not now. I'm sorry. We have our orders. We busted our asses getting here. Half my men are killed. And you're just going to stop and drink tea? Look, we're now facing a completely different situation. We can't leave with tanks up that road. Jerry will pick us off like sitting ducks. Our infantry are still fighting in Nijmegen. When they get here, we'll move on. For Christ's sake, must you do everything but a book? Our orders are to wait for the infantry. I'm sorry, but there it is. Now, you could say that he's just been through an extremely traumatic uh, yeah. mission, and, yeah. he, you know, he's on a high. But he, he does do the thing saying, oh, do you always have to drink tea? Yeah. You know? And I thought, but he's got a point. You know, they, they have to stop. You know, if they just go ahead, they'll get blown up. But mm. um, it's presented as... The American having a heroic go at the British, which of course. Gets yeah, <laughs> another story about Robert Redford during that crossing. He actually said afterwards, "That's the scariest thing I've ever done because there were char- oh, there were charges going off in the mm. water, and one of the technical crew was in the same boat as Robert Redford with a camera. And the boats and the current of the river was stronger than they thought. Yeah, and they actually had little motors in the boats to keep them going. Oh, right. But there were certain charges on some of the boats to be blown up right. and in the water." But immediately all the boats got mixed up. They didn't know where it was. So it got quite chaotic. Oh. And they carried on filming and up and blah, blah. And Robert Redford came back after the film, the scene was filmed. And he was quite angry because it was chaos. it was a genuinely dramatic. Yeah. It was chaos. It was, a lot of the explosions were very close. didn't know where they were happening. And the guy um, sort of made him feel better by saying, yeah, that was, yeah, he said it was. The main thing he says, but the, you know, the camera was on you all the time. And Robert Redford suddenly realised that this was a very exciting real scene yeah. and he wasn't replaced by a stuntman, he was doing it himself and how good that would be. Oh, for him. right, yeah. And that um, made, you know, uh, mollified him. <laughs> <laughs> so, goodness me, um, if we go up to sort of looking at Arnhem, yeah. I think this is easier doing it geographically than the chronology. Yes, yeah. So, we've got Sean Connery. With the first airborne and Anthony Hopkins is in Arnhem. Holding the bridge. Holding the bridge. Amazingly, yeah, <laughs> yeah they do uh, quite a good job. There's a brilliant scene where um, they try to. They send Alan Armstrong with a fly- flamethrower over at night yes. to try and get the. Uh, there's a little the gun port. Yeah, pillbox. Yeah. And he accidentally lets off the flamethrower. Misses the pillbox and hits a, an ammo dump by. Yeah. Well, at first they think they just hit yeah. a little hut. He goes, "You idiot! You missed!" And it's like the the most successful thing that's happened in this this film so far. It just blows up and, of course, destroys the German pillbox. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, it's pretty much all downhill because, um, I mean, well, this only... is where the Panzer divisions are. So yes. there's very strong. Yeah. Resistance. So they come over. 
they do make several attempts and fail the Germans, mm. um, but eventually they get over, and it's it's real hand to hand fighting. One of the interesting things about this film and the backdrop is just the Dutch mm. background to it. I mean, the scenes, particularly with Sean Connery, he gets separated from his men and can't get back because he gets stuck in uh, Oosterbeck, I think. Oh right, yeah, it's a little town. And yeah. he, these are houses that you'd recognise today. Yes, they're, they're quite modern. I mean, they're nineteen forties, but. It looks like a modern housing estate. Yeah. And there's tanks and Germans yes. and troops and they, you know, it's it's that feeling. I find the, the Dutch aspects of World War Two very interesting. Yeah. Um, and so you get that. So when you get this street street fighting. Mm. And in people's just, living rooms. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's that brilliant scene where Sean Connery and, and they brought one of their wounded into someone's living room. And there's an old couple saying, we'll look after him. And then the German soldier walks yeah. past the window, turns. Yeah. And in the middle of this conversation, Sean Corey <laughs> shoots the German through the window. Yeah. And because it's in someone's living room, in this small living room, it suddenly seems so much more violent than anything yeah. else that's happened. Yes, yes. It, I mean, this was, these were normal people's lives. Mm. Trying to imagine that, where an invading force comes in, yeah. takes over your Even country. A liberating force here yeah. brings violence with it. Oh, of course, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but that's a good <clears throat> scene as well, where they get separated and have to get back. There's, there's th I think, three, in quick succession, three scenes which end up with people saying, we're surrounded. At one yeah. point, it's Sean Connery's character, realise they're surrounded. Another point, it's... Um, Anthony Hopkins' character. Yeah. They're on the corner of the bridge at Arnhem, but they realise that there are Germans behind them and over the bridge. Yes. I mean, that's how it was. So, because, as you said earlier, Sean Connery um, was landed, his units were landed eight miles. Yeah. In fact, they all were. They were all landed eight miles. And there were three routes to get to Arnhem. I think they were called something like Lion, Leopard and Tiger. <laughs> right. Something So we each had to take one. And they all ran up against heavier German opposition than they thought mm. Frost got through Yeah, he had 750 men I think with him oh, in Arnhem right. yeah. tiny number and he was just waiting for the others to join him yes. um, and then eventually the Polish were going to land and they were going to join them yeah. but none of them could get through and Sean Connery's lot ended up in this little, it's called the Thumb which is right. one of the RAMC chaps describes to Liv Ullman uh, he goes into all the military jargon and she's yes. <laughs> uh, anyway they they were completely surrounded and they just yeah. had to sort of batten down. This was at the Holstein Hotel was their uh, HQ. Right, yeah. And they had the area around it. That's where the British were trying to do these drops of supplies. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. another interesting thing. The Germans knew all the British signs for landing. Oh. You know, land here. You know, drop your stuff of here. Of course, yeah, yeah. So the British were told to ignore any signs from the ground. Yes, um, and drop them in the official landing zone. So they did that despite the fact that it had changed. Yeah. The British were trying to do their landing signs, but they were told to ignore them. So it's just this: the Germans were just closing in and closing in. Mm. Um, we've got Lawrence Olivier in this film as well. Yes. He plays a Dutch doctor, um, and this is the Liv Ullman. Her house is taken over. She, yeah. This is the Angel of Arnhem. Yeah, <laughs> uh, used as a Kate Horst hospital. Yeah. I got confused actually because the Hornstein, Hornstein Hotel and Liv Ullman's house look very similar. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until I read this that I realised that they were different locations. Ah, oh, right. Yeah. If you look at them in the film, one is absolutely, the hospital one is completely, or is it the other, I can't remember yeah. now, the Hornstein, completely blown to pieces. And I mean, at the end of the film, when Liv Ullman and Lawrence Olivia leave, yeah. and the children, their front garden 
is a graveyard. You see it at the beginning, they're coming out with their orange things, right? Yeah. Which, at the end, it's their front garden's a graveyard with yeah. crosses and everything. I mean, because there's something that happened after the events in this film is there was a, a terrible winter. Yeah. In um, Holland, and um, I think it was, and of course the Germans were still in control, and mm. I think it was uh, after all the victory parades and thinking they'd been um, liberated, it was almost worse than you know before. Just before Market Garden, the Dutch government who were in exile in Britain, and yeah. so was the Dutch Queen, I don't know if ordered or asked the Dutch railway workers to go on strike. And this was to help, because they knew the Germans were retreating. Mm. This was kind of part of that. This was only a couple of days before Market Garden happened. Um, when Market Garden failed, in retaliation for that strike and for helping the British during Market Garden, the Germans cut off all food delivery to, I think, the, the, the west of Holland or something. Oh. So they had nothing to eat. One guy I saw interviewed said they ate tulips. He said, to this day, I hate tulips. And he said, and my, and my parents would, um, that was their business, tulips. Yeah. But he was forced to eat them as a boy during the war. Poisonous, aren't they? Well, I don't know. Whatever they yeah. did, I mean, maybe there was some way of yeah. cooking them. But yeah. um, like 22,000 like Dutch people died of starvation during that winter oh, God. until they were relieved in April 1945 yeah you know Operation Market Garden was a 90% successful they didn't take the bridge at Arnhem but they did liberate the you know Eindhoven and I think Nijmegen so they did yeah. get that far and those weren't taken back by the Germans and looking at a map Nijmegen is very close to, to Germany I don't know if there's like uh, mountains in the way or something which made Arnhem a better mm, no, it's bridge not a very mountainous country is it <laughs> yeah I don't know but, um, uh, of course yeah Holland yeah. I mean, as you say they, they had to take Arnhem and that mm. was the route into the Ruhr region mm, where yeah. the German factories armaments factories were yeah. that was the thing that would have finished the war by there. Christmas but yeah, I mean, we could we could go on about various scenes in this film for a long time. It's a th almost a three-hour film, I think. Yeah. Um, but we probably need to wrap up. Is there anything... What was your general sense of... Uh, well, this? Yeah, go on. Yeah, they end up one mile away from there. You know, when they decide to give up and Sean Connery's character finally gets radio um, contact and he's told, right, retreat. Yes. They're one mile away from their objective, which yeah. makes you feel as though, you know, it's so close. And there's a speech at the end where all the um, lieutenant generals and so on meet, mm. and they they each one saying, "Oh, it was what was the why did we fail? It was Nijmegen. It was the fact that we only had a single lane road. Yeah. It was the fog which prevented the Polish from even leaving England yes. until too we should, late." We didn't mention Denham Elliott plays an RAF meteorologist. Oh yes, who uh, uh, says, oh, "I'm awfully sorry, yeah. but the f this is the thing about fog." <laughs> as, yeah. um, sort of as it's a slippery as chap. Yeah. Well, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> I love Denim Elliott. <laughs> very good. Only a very short scene. Yeah. I just want to mention another scene at the end where um, John Connery has got out. Yeah, because they they get the order to withdraw and they have to mm. go across the river, back across the river at, um, near Arnhem, Oosterbeck, yeah. and as he drives to the Browning's HQ. Yes. In Holland, the geese are going, <laughs> and they're like they're laughing at him. Oh, right, and it's yeah. like, do you remember the um, asylum patients? Yeah, they're laughing, and he oh, says, you know, yes. they're laughing. It's the geese are doing the same thing Very at the good, end, yeah. which I think is a nice bit. Now he does get one line now uh, where um, Dirk Bogard's character says to him, "You did all you could." 
Yeah. And Sean Connery says, yes, but did everyone else? Yeah. Which is the one point where it's not blamed on the situation, but you think, well, what does he... I don't didn't know exactly what he meant mm. there, but... Um, I mean, think about it. He was parachuted into this ridiculous position, yeah. eight miles, eight kilometres from Arnhem, and was waiting for everyone, and they never came, and he yeah. had no communication... So he yeah. had no idea. It's almost instantly. Were they trying hard enough? Do they realise the situation he was in, surrounded by? I mean, yeah. that was the worst. The Battle of Arnhem was probably the worst bit of the whole thing. Mm. Some terrible scenes there for the British. Just kept running into Germans. Yeah. Apparently, there was one bit during the the um, operation where it was night. It was foggy. The British were marching along. I can't remember which bit this was on. It was earlier. And they were marching against some people. Suddenly they realised the people they were marching with were speaking German. <laughs> oh my God. And they were two columns. It was the German and the British marching along. They didn't realise for several, I don't know if it was minutes or... And then they really they realised that a fight oh broke out. Oh my God. <laughs> That's the chaos. Yeah. It. So it's a brilliant film, I think. And it's also, yeah. unlike any of the others we've done before, but it really shows... Those are shown like heroic and personal stories, where this is a lot more about the strategy and tactics and how things can go wrong on a on an operational level mm. rather than personal stories. Yeah, I thought because of the way it's structured, jumping around lots of little stories with well-known actors, it was almost like a disaster film. Yeah, which there were a lot around in the nineteen seventies, where yes. you'd have a lot of little stories. Yeah, so I think it, it's a good that it's unlike any of the other stories we any of the other films we've. Uh, looked at in the series yeah. so far. Just looking at the others, most of, the, of our ten films are fictional. Yeah, um, we're looking at Zulu, which is based on a true event. Um, Downfall, which is yeah. based on true event, and Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, based on a true event. Um, the next film we're doing is It Happened Here, which is a fairly probably the least known of the films. We're I haven't at. seen it before. <laughs> so it's 1964. So going back a bit. Directed by Kevin Brownlow, so we'll, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, a shorter film, uh, but very fictional because it's about the Germans invading Britain. Yeah, and it, as if it's a it's a what if, mm. you know, what if they invaded Britain? <clears throat> so I think we could go on about a bridge too far a lot. Very good film. Yeah, successfully done film. Yeah. Um definitely worth watching. You just need three hours. Watch <laughs> it and, and get print out a map. Yes. So you can look at who's who and where's where. Uh, yeah. Helps. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for listening, and we'll look forward to um, doing the next War Films podcast for It Haven't Here. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.